Good afternoon. It's great to see you. My name's Rowan. I'm the assistant minister here at the Garrison Church. Uh, warm welcome to you if you're visiting. Hopefully I'll get a chance to meet you later. We're going to, this afternoon, look at the passage that was read out throughout the first section of our service, Psalm 139, but also Matthew 10. So they're printed in the order of service you received. Uh, there's an outline on page 11 with a really short, pithy title, Three Attributes of God, How They Lead to Fear of the God and Practical Implications for a Wise Life. <laughs> Catchy. Uh, but that's what we hope to achieve uh, this afternoon as we think about uh, God's omniscience, that is, that God is all-knowing. So over the course of these three weeks, we're looking at the character of God, or the attributes of God, and how they lead us to fear God and a wise life. Well, as we, as we think about the theme of knowledge uh, this afternoon, one thing that strikes us immediately is that humanity is incredibly creative. Wonderfully, uh, God made our world. I'm echoing. Am I standing in a bad place, Ollie, or is that all right? There we are. That's good. Uh, wonderfully, our, our world is one which is open for exploration, and God created us in such a way that we can create, that we can learn and grow uh, and explore, and that's good, uh, we're told in Genesis 1 and 2. Yet, at the same time, humanity struggles with limits. We naturally want to push the boundaries, and when we think about knowledge, we're hungry to grow. We've got an appetite for knowledge, and it's, it's insatiable in one sense. And at this particular cultural moment as well, with the internet, there, there is more information accessible to us than we've ever had in history. Uh, Jen Wilk Wilkin writes this, we're testing the limits of our consumption in a way previous generations have not. The internet is a smorgasbord for the inquisitive, to the board. But then she goes on to point out that, that with the rise and the accessibility of information, with our insatiable appetite for it, driven by um, interest but also by boredom and our tendency to consume, if we, if we thoughtlessly consume information and knowledge, it can lead to all kinds of problems. Now, there's a, there's a term out there now which is called information overload. I imagine it's got the uh, emoji with the brain exploding uh, to match it. Um, I am no psychologist, and so the first of a series of confessions tonight, if I say this wrong, my psychologist friends, you can slap me on the wrist later, but, but there's all kinds of maladies which are associated with information overload. That are, that are present in, in, in this cultural moment, particularly uh, health problems in the sense of our over, over and, and thoughtless consume, cons consuming of, of um, information can lead to all kinds of, of health problems. It can lead to, they say, irritability, anger, lethargy, listlessness, and sleeplessness, uh, let alone anxiety uh, and things related with that, like. Uh, increased blood pressure. It can lead to relational problems. Uh, increasingly, in an online world as well, in the ways in which we find out information, relating to people has changed. It's less embodied, 
And so we're having to, to learn how to negotiate relationships differently. It's interesting, we've got friends who are just a little bit ahead of us. Um, our eldest is 10, but they speak about the ways in which particularly girls and boys relate now is, is changing from previous generations and, and largely uh, because of technology. It's neither good nor bad necessarily, but just kind of is. Um, information overload can diminish our ability to make decisions. It's called the paralysis of analysis. That is, we, we, we kind of fear not having that extra piece of information um, and, and, and we fear that there might be something else out there that will invalidate the decision that we've just made and so it can lead us to a form of paralysis. So thoughtless consumption of, of information, um, you know, we should be, be wary just to consume, to consume, to consume. We need to think about, about knowledge. And Jen Wilkin makes this point, but she points out that, that this is not new. She says, knowledge has always been presented to us as a solution to dissonance. Knowledge has always been presented to us as a solution to dissonance. Adam and Eve grasp for knowledge in taking the fruit from the tree. The teacher of Ecclesiastes writes, of the making of many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. So it's, it's an age-old problem that, solution is seen, uh, the solu that knowledge is seen as the solution to dissonance. And so as we think about living wisely in 2020, as we think about what it means to fear the Lord, what difference God's omniscience, he, that, that he knows everything, he's all-knowing, what, what difference does that make for us uh, in our lives? And why in this information-saturated world that we live is that good news? There's some of the themes that we are going to consider this afternoon. But as we do so, and as we, as we think about this, I just wanted to speak about how we're going to speak about God. Usually on a Sunday, uh, we would preach through a book of the Bible, what we would call maybe expository preaching, where we'd read a passage out, we'd seek to understand what the passage meant in its original context to its original audience, maybe the author's intention, then thinking about how it applies to us, particularly in Christ, and what kind of principles and applications we can draw for ourselves. When we're thinking theologically about God and his character, uh, though we'll be moored to two passages in particular, Psalm 139 and, and Matthew 10, uh, we're not going to be bound by those in a way that we would usually through preaching an expository passage, just so that you, your expectations are set. But the other thing too is, as we think about God, it's easy for us to to work from ourselves up. So God is just a greater version of, of us. And so as we think about his particular attributes or characteristics, his power last week, knowledge this week, and his presence next week, there's a sense in which there is an, there's an analogous relationship because we have those things the temptation for us is to work from us up to work out what God is like. But we've got to remember that we are like God because we're made in his image. So as we think about God's characteristics, his attributes, there will be overlap in the ideas, but we need to realise that God transcends infinitely anything that we share. We should not think that God is like us, a greater version of us, 
that would be to domesticate God. Rather, these weeks are here to help us to see God as distinct from us and above us, even if the particular attributes we're talking about overlap with our own experience. The aim is that in in thinking about the fear of God, we need to be in awe of him, to behold him as he is presented to us and as he reveals himself to us in the Bible as the greater thing, uh, greater than the greatest thing that we can perceive. One author writes, our goal is not to walk away with mere knowledge, rather this knowledge of God is to lead us into worship. That's just to frame it up. Hope that's helpful. So we're thinking not necessarily us up, but rather God as other and different down. So let's consider what it means that God is omniscient. Hear these words that were read to us earlier from David. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. So what does omniscience mean? Well, you'll see there, there's a list of four words that help us to capture its meaning. Omniscience means knowing everything. So firstly, God, God knows. Uh, Mark Twain famously said, when I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant, I could hardly stand to have the old man around But when I got to 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Now, there's a sense in which, as human beings, what marks us out as as learners is that we grow in our knowledge and hopefully in humility as as we get older. There's a Ben Fold song where he says, you know, you get smaller and the world got big. The more you know, you know you don't know squat. Maybe a different word there. But getting older means that we grow in knowledge and our knowledge is gained by observation and our knowledge is dependent on others. But God does not learn, because learning implies change. God knows all things. Job uh, 37 says this, Do you not know how the clouds hang poised? Those wonders of him who is perfect in knowledge. He knows all things. His knowledge is, is perfect. But it's not just knowing in, in the abstract. It's personal. Remember the psalm we just read. David, the covenant king, is said to have been known by God personally. You have searched me, Lord, and you you know me. Theologian Jim Packer writes, he knows everything about everything and everybody all the time. In the psalm, it says that his thoughts outnumber the grains of sand. God knows all things all things past, present, and future. This means that nothing is outside of, of God's knowledge. Nothing catches him by surprise. He doesn't need to access information or, or retrieve a file. God knows all things. Secondly, God sees all things. His eyes run everywhere. Proverbs 15.3 says this, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Part of 
God's omniscience is that he sees. Psalm 33 says, the heavens, sorry, From heaven the Lord looks down and sees all mankind. From his dwelling place he watches all who live on earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything that they do. God sees, but again, it's not merely in the abstract. Again, it's personal. David in this psalm writes, You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You are for me with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. And then in the later verses, 7 to 12, we see that we cannot hide from his, his gaze. God sees everything. It means we can't escape his gaze. It means the things that we do in secret, the Lord sees. The things that we think, the Lord sees. The things that we should do but don't do, the Lord sees. In our prayer of preparation that we read earlier from the Lord's Supper service, we acknowledge this. Almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, all desires known, from whom no secrets are hidden. God knows he sees as part of his omniscience. And thirdly, God understands all things. The Lord, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, says this, Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him? Who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path to understanding? And then later in the chapter, he says, He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. This is as God reveals himself. Who instructs the Lord as his counselor? Who consults him? Well, the passage speaks that no one can because God understands all things. And his knowledge here is linked with his other attributes, his power and his sovereignty. Psalm 147 says, Great is the Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. So linked with his sovereignty means that God understands all things. Jim Packer writes, He knows each thing both in itself and in relation to all other things because he created it, sustains it, and now makes it function every moment according to his plan for it. God understands all things. But again, it's not just abstract. It's personal. Verse 13 of Psalm 139. You created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame is not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God understands all things, both in themselves and in relation to other things. And finally, God remembers all things. If God holds all knowledge, then he is incapable of forgetting. The Bible does speak that God would forget our sin, but it's a way in which he is expressing the fact that he remembers his covenant love committed to his people to forgive sin. So remembering here, as, particularly as we read in the Bible, is a component of timing. Theologians correctly say that God's outside of time, he is spirit, but God reveals himself in Scripture in ways that we understand it. The Bible puts God into time, as it were, so we can grasp it. 
God's omniscience means that he remembers. And again, it's just not abstract. It's personal. And as we consider those things, and and there's heaps more to be said on each of those points, um, perhaps, you know, like the emoji, emoji, your your head's kind of uh, at the moment. But, But the significance of that, that God is omniscient, and that it's connected to his omnipotence, his power, and next week we'll see his, his presence everywhere and all these other attributes. What does that mean for us? How is that significant for us? How does that help us to fear him and live a wise life? We'll see there on the outline two headings to think through. I'm going to reverse them, if you permit me. How will this save my eternity and how will this shape my day? How will this shape today? Well, as we consider God, that he he knows everything, that he sees everything, that he understands, that he remembers, we should be humbled by that fact. In one sense, if we didn't know God to be as he is toward us in Christ, all we'd be left in is terror, in one sense. So it should humble us that God sees, understands, and remembers Uh, Peter Hitchens is the brother of late Christopher Hitchens. Uh, Like his brother, he is a journalist. Uh, He was an atheist and then had a journey to faith over many years, and he describes some of that in his book, The Rage Against God. And it's interesting because in in that book, he speaks about the place of fear in his journey to faith in Christ. See... Much like his brother, he was a successful journalist, uh, and he himself describes himself would scoff at the thought of an all-seeing, all-knowing God. Yet he describes in a book an encounter he had with a painting by a 15th-century artist, and this is where I make my second confession to the art buffs of the world as I butcher whatever this artist's name is. Roger, Roger Van der Weyden, Say with confidence, Rowan, everyone will believe you. Uh, And a particular image of of the Last Judgment. You can look it up online. I did yesterday. Uh, But don't consume too much. That's part of the point. But uh, in this this image, it's a classic medieval image of of the Last Judgment. So you can imagine Christ on his throne, some angels, um, and then what is described as the damned down the bottom. And they're naked men and women kind of experiencing... Uh, the all-seeing, all-judging God. It's, 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 it's a terrifying scene in and of itself, and particular, uh, identified, particularly identified with that time in history and probably the influence of Dante as well. But, but what struck him as he, as he looked at this image, he said, is how remarkably similar the faces of those amongst the damned looked like him. He, he realised for the first time, he doesn't describe it as a religious experience, but a sense of... What, what if this is true? What if God sees? What if God knows? And he says he's brought to his mind you know, a large catalogue of misdeeds ranging from embarrassing to the appalling. That God was all knowing and seeing frightened him. But he writes about fear in this way, and it's, it's striking as we think about it. He says, no doubt I should be ashamed to confess that fear played a part in my return to religion. 
I could easily make up some other, more credible story, but I should be even more ashamed to pretend that it did not. I felt proper fear, not very often, but enough to know that it is an important gift which helps us to think clearly in moments of danger. And he goes on to speak of um, some of the places where he was a journalist and experienced true fear. But then he goes on, but the most important time was when I stood in front of Roger van der Weyden's great altarpiece and trembled for the things for which my conscience was afraid and is afraid. Fear is good for us and helps us escape from great dangers. Those who do not feel it are in permanent peril because they cannot see the risks that lie at their feet. And there's a sense as part of thinking about the fear of God in which we need to come in humility and recognise that part of the picture of God's omniscience is that he sees and he knows us. He knows our catalogue of things from embarrassing to appalling. But he writes, fear is good for us because it helps us to escape from great dangers. And in our second reading, we read particularly that we can escape from danger into the safety of God's fatherly care. In Matthew 28 we read, Do not be afraid of those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. It's saying the all-knowing God is to be feared. We should behold him in his power and his glory, be in awe of him, but not in a way that means that we can't approach him. Listen to this beautiful statement in the next little bit of Matthew's Gospel. He continues, speaking of God's knowledge. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. You are worth more than many sparrows. I don't actually know if two sparrows are worth a penny. Uh, but his point is, God in his care as Father loves us. And if these things are valuable and God cares about them, and in our own minds they're probably pretty insignificant, we know that how much more does our Father in heaven care about us? And so as we think about the fear of God and, and recognising that he knows all things, we need not be afraid, but rather, in safety, we should run to his fatherly care because we know that he cares for us, that we are worth more to him than these other things. He demonstrates his care. He knows the numbers of hair on your head. He may love some of you more than he loves me. I am balding. But theologian Scott Swain says this, and I think it's a beautiful point. He says, We tend to think of God as reluctant to forgive and ready to condemn, but the Scriptures declare that quite the opposite is the case. For all the filthiness and assiduousness of our sin, all that God sees, God is reluctant to condemn and ready to forgive. It's a picture we get time and time again in the Scriptures. And he's made it all possible through his Son, Jesus' sin-bearing death on our behalf. That the, all God, that the all-knowing God sees 
will be a terrifying thought if we know that he did not remember his own love for us that he expressed in his son and his sin-bearing death for us on our behalf. We can be safe in his son. But how are we to respond? Well, it's through repentance and faith. Verse 32 says, Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven, but whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. It's a plea to accept safety in the care of the Father through the Son. The safety of God's care for eternity. So part of fearing God is recognizing that he sees, feeling the weight of that, and that's heavy, and we've got to recognize that. But to know that God is for us, that he cares about us, and that he has made it possible for us to be safe in his son and to be drawn to him. That's the difference it makes for eternity. But what difference does it make for today? As you wake up tomorrow, well, you need to remember tomorrow that you are worth more than many sparrows. Remember, God's thoughts outnumber the grains of sand, and his care of you means that he can number the hairs on your head. He loves you and he cares for you. He's provided the means by which we can be right with him, that in Christ, the knowledge that we are known by God that in Christ we can voice the words of the psalmist, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. God cares about everything that happens to you. And when we are in his son, as we think about God's omniscience, there is great comfort there. Things might catch us by surprise, but the God who is sovereign, who is all-powerful, who knows everything, is for us, who cares about us, even in the midst of shocking and terrible things that may happen, never forget that your life is being watched over and directed by a caring, loving Father who knows, sees, understands, and remembers. Now, there's much to mine there, which we will address later in in the year. But hear of his care connected to his knowledge. So finally, tomorrow, as you head into the week following Jen Wilkin. Let me, let me close with four truths uh, that is good news for us about believing in on an omniscient God. Firstly, you can't outsmart God. God knows all things. He holds all the facts. You can't come up with a better plan. And so we need to know the limits of our knowledge But the good news is is that we don't need to outsmart God. Because he knows all things and because he cares for us, we can trust him. So perhaps we need to spend less time chasing curiosities or diagnoses online and spend more time in his word where perfect wisdom is found, where we will read of his love for us in Christ. Secondly, you cannot bargain with God. God sees and understands all things. He knows how we think and act in every situation. So we can't bargain with God for a reward. But again, the good news is that we don't need to bargain with God. 
because he has covenanted to care and love you in his son. Christ has shed his blood for us and now nothing can separate us from his love. Thirdly, you cannot fool God. God sees everything. He sees every thought, word and deed, everything done and left undone, as the prayer book says. We can often fool others by putting on an act, but to God we're all bad actors, transparent before him. But the good news is, is that we don't need to fool God. Psalm 139 says he knows us and in his son he accepts us as we are. And finally, you cannot rely on God to forget. We might want God to forget what we are like, but, but we actually cannot rely on that and nor should we want it. Why? Because we need him to be the God who never forgets never forgets his covenant promises that are for our good in his son. In the words of Isaiah 49, God says this through the prophet, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child that is born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you in the palms of my hands. God does not forget his covenant love to those who are in his son. So we began with Jen Wilkins' comment, knowledge has always been presented as the solution to dissonance. But we've seen that it's not. Rather, the solution to, to the dissonance we might feel is that we are known by God, that we are his, that we are engraved in the palms of his hand. I don't know where you're at in your, your journey of faith. Uh, you might be coming here and this is the first time in which um, you've heard about the all-seeing, all-knowing God. Uh, I can imagine that's a, a heavy thought to come into on a Sunday afternoon. But can I leave you with just a challenge to remember, like Peter Hitchens as he faced that image, the what-if question. What if there is a God who knows, who sees, who understands, who never forgets. We need to humble ourselves before him, but also, what if? What if there is a God who sees, knows, and understands and cares about you, who loves you, and who has made everything possible for you to be right with him through your son? Can I encourage you to give that some thought the way in which to do that would be to, to take one of the Gospels up the back, have a read through it. You might come to the conclusion that we're all bonkers, and that's okay. But what if it is true? Why not take a Gospel and read or come and speak to me or someone you came with? It's great to have you here. And please come and, and speak to me afterwards if you have questions about this also. But to close, before we sing before the throne of God above, where we sing of those wonderful words that our name is graven in his hands, our name is written on his heart. Let us humble ourselves together uh, with this prayer of confession. 1 John 1, 8 and 9, on page 12, says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just 
and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness.